0: I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Seanan McGuire, filling in for Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time somebody did. Welcome to episode 269 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. This week, Jay and Seanan explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. So first of all, Seanan, thank you so much for coming in and and being our emergency backup guest co-host. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. I think this is your third time on the show. I think that is correct, yes, if okay. we count the live episode. Excellent. All right. Good. So you you know the entire drill. Um, listeners, we let you know a little while ago that Shannon was gonna be on. What we are going to do today is deviate somewhat from the usual um structure of the show, which is usually usually chronology or a specific story focused or something like that. Today Shannon and I are going to be talking about villains. <laughs> yes. And also possibly our upcoming plans for world domination. Ongoing, actually. We wouldn't tell you about them if they were still upcoming. Yeah, we're taking over. Yeah, it's going to be good. Everything is so queer. So queer. Uh, speaking of which, if you were not aware, we are on a campaign to get Marvel Comics to grant Jay and Miles explain the X Men its own multiversal designation, um, a universe over which Miles uh, and I and you know any you know, selected lieutenants have complete sway, where Apocalypse is a really responsible middle manager and so forth, um, and where all of our all of our dumb imaginary canon is 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 true. Um, we have we have a tentative. It's okay with me from the X line editor. But we feel like this needs to be in writing and there definitely needs to be a big certificate. So if you feel like dropping Marvel a line and letting them know that, that they need to, need to make it official, um, we know a notary. Um, we're fairly sure that she would be happy to, to append her stamp to this. Can you actually
1: notarize the creation of a new level of the multiverse? You can notarize anything as long as you've got the right paperwork. I've created a few levels of
0: the multiverse and they didn't involve a notary.
1: Well, they usually
0: don't when they happen in comics, but this is an aberration, Um, as as Jordan explained when we brought it up with him on Twitter, because normally multiversal designations get assigned when a universe is shown to exist in the comics. And unless it's, you know what, I'm not even going to worry about the siren. There are going to be sirens periodically. We live near a fire station. Sorry about that, listeners. It's better than everything being on fire. Normally, Miles and I sort of pause and go around this and Matt edits them up. Part of the fun of a sofa special is that there's relatively little editing to be done. Um, and, the rest and of the fun is I'm week. not wearing pants. It's true. I can verify this. I am wearing pants, which I'm, is kind of
1: sad. And we're using pants in the American sense. In the British sense, I am wearing pants. I just want to stress
0: that. I believe that everyone here is wearing underwear. yes. Uh, not my sloth, not your candy corn. We have ridiculous stuffies. I got this amazing sloth at New York Comic-Con, and uh Shannon has a, a piece of anthropomorphic candy corn that looks very, very pleased with itself. You'd be pleased too if you were a piece of candy corn this large. That's true. I guess if I were inedible candy corn, I might be more okay with the state of being candy corn. If I were edible candy corn, I would be deeply concerned. If you were edible candy corn in my presence,
1: you would have reason to be deeply concerned. Well, or my own presence. Like it would be getting into to you'd M&M, be like Homer, got into a donut here.
0: Yes. Yeah, so the point is, glad I'm not candy corn today. <laughs> uh, we are also solidly team candy corn. I don't know where Miles stands on this, but since he's not in this episode and and Shannon is, is officially um, the, the stand in Miles with all associated powers, I'm going to say that this is this is Jay and Miles explain the X-Men taking the stance of officially pro candy corn. Candy corn is great. It is. Haters to the left or to the elsewhere. Or we'll just take your candy corn. You know, more for us. It works out nicely. Yep. It is the, the balance of Halloween
1: candy economy. That is the whole point of trading the day after Halloween. One Snickers bar when I would, was in elementary school could get me like 15 of those little individual serving bags of candy corn.
0: It was the best position to be in. Oh, man. See, I had I had the whole other allergic to peanuts thing going, which on one hand meant that I had really good candy that I, I would just trade and that I couldn't eat anyway. But on the other hand, meant that the people who I was trading with generally knew that like... I wasn't going to be eating that candy anyway, which lowered its relative market value. Mm. But I like weird Halloween candy anyway. So yeah, like candy corn and stuff. The The highest highest value bars among the people I traded with, I remember, weren't based on size. They were specifically the very, very miniature candy bars that came in metallic the metallic wrappers. Because yes. the metallic wrappers made them cooler. The metallic wrappers are perfect origami paper. I made a
1: thousand paper cranes out of just those candy bar wrappers.
0: Are they actually paper at that point? I don't, I don't know what those are made Technically of. Technically they're maybe? paper. They're paper with
1: a foil overlay and they sell origami paper. That's paper with a foil. Right. Overlay. So no, I'm, I'm
0: thinking of the ones I, the, that are the same, same wrappers that you, you find on candy bars in the store. That, that, yeah, plastic-y. Mr. Goodbar
1: and Hershey's and special dark. Those are paper wrappers. No,
0: that's, I'm, I'm thinking of a different, different wrapper oh, okay. Material. Um, the one that has the, that have like the stamped zigzag ends oh, that stuff. yeah that's yeah. plastic yeah that's that's what these were covered in okay cool um, so speaking of Halloween we've got a bunch of reader questions and I think we're just going to pepper them through the episode and I'm going to start with one that has absolutely nothing to do with ex-villains okay because it is a time-sensitive question and I want to make sure that we get it out before Halloween um V has asked us on Twitter my office is having a Halloween party with a comic book theme which ex x character should i dress as to help them regret their decision or should i just go with quentin choir for an excuse to dye my hair pink well if that's your logic then
1: i would go with quentin choir for the excuse to dye your hair pink Uh, but my go-to whenever i want people to regret asking me to dress up as a comic book character is tabby smith once you're boom boom you can fill the pockets of your trench coat with christmas crackers and just start setting off little new year's bombs in the office and that's you know completely appropriate and now everything is confetti
0: and glitter That is, that does sound like an excellent way to get people to regret things. I also feel like Tabby Smith with pink hair would be entirely plausible. That's the other thing to remember is that you can dye your hair pink and be any X-Men with pink hair. But if you want to make sure it's canonical, I think Dazzler actually also had a pink haired period. Um, She There's always Pixie. I love Pixie. Um,
1: Normally I'd say Emma Frost for almost everything, but Mm -hmm. that could get you a sexual harassment suit in some offices. So I don't- You could
0: be like business suit Emma
1: Frost. You could be business suit Emma, but I don't recommend a lot of the female X-Men in their default costumes. Um I
0: I I have no idea what's happening. So T is also in the room and is is miming, I think she's miming strife to me. Okay, yes, uh, T suggests being strife for which you can also dye your hair pink, but no one will see it. Now see, I would not go with strife for an office party because the issue with an office party is you're probably going to have to get there and back via whatever your normal means of getting to and from your office is and strife is definitely not a public transit friendly costume no i mean it might be for you but it definitely won't be for the people
1: around you and remember the rules of consensual cosplay the person who's sitting next to you on the bus did not consent to losing an eye tonight
0: yeah no so um so i would this this is this is a costume for which i would probably not dress up as strife ultimately my answer to my non-funny answer to this is basically going to be whatever you feel most comfortable being in around your coworkers, because depending mm-hmm. on where you work and also depending on what you like to do in terms of costuming, that's going to be a really big factor. Quentin Quire is a great costume because you can make it out of street clothes and it's got pockets. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, having having dressed up as Quentin Quire, um, I I endorse that. It's a lot of fun. People will not know who you were dressed as, even if they were if they are comics people. I went as Quentin Quire to three different comics people parties in in Portland, and at every single one, most people thought I was Spider Jerusalem, and I had a psychic shotgun and everything. It was a really good psychic shotgun. Why would Spider Jerusalem have pink hair? Like I, that's the part that gets me hung up. See, that I think goes with the, you can be any character but with pink hair if you happen to have pink hair. That is very true, but if you don't normally have pink hair,
1: I will read it as a part of your costume. You know, any character I dress up as, I'm that character with a sunset ombre. Mm -hmm. But if I show up with black hair, which is completely out of character, it would not be unreasonable for you to expect that the black hair was somehow connected to the costume I was in.
0: See, I had had the same hairstyle and it had been red and it just went down to pink for the costume. Yeah. So so there's that. All right. So moving on and segueing from here. And as as we think of more, which I'm sure we will, um, we will let you know. Ooh, actually, I really love the idea of showing up at an office party as Mr. Sinister. That has the double effect that there's definitely a pro wrestler who is dressed as him. So you're going to get multiple recognition vectors Mm -hmm. going on at once. I mean, one group isn't going to recognize you as as um, as Mr. Sinister. They're going to ask. Let me see if I can actually remember this name. I think it is Cody Rhodes. I'm not certain. Um, If I got this right, I'm super proud of myself because all I know about him is that he dresses up as Mr. Sinister. But um, depending on what you look like, if you can find two people who look similar
1: enough, you could go as the Stepford Cuckoos and just teach the people that you've recruited as your sisters to speak in
0: unison with you. That would be very regret worthy. The other option um, that's that's an easier one to dress up as and requires less coordination is to get a couple other people who look like you and go as Jamie Madrox. Oh, nice! It's always an option. If you work in a work the kind of workplace where people don't go all out for Halloween and you want to really make them all uncomfortable with how much harder you tried, Nightcrawler is kind of the obvious go-to. Beast would also work, but something that involves like full body makeup. Yes. Now there's one other option actually that I thought of. This is the lowest effort X Men Halloween costume of all time. Wear whatever you want. Say you're dressed as Mystique. (laughs) So Mystique is a good segue into villainy. Villainy, villainy. So X Men villains. Like who? When you when you think of X Men villains, who's your sort of go to list? Who are the first names that pop out? Charles Xavier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know
1: I, that's a drum I beat a lot, but it's one that I'm pretty solidly stuck on. Mystique, Magneto. Um, the Hellfire Club. The Hellfire general. Club as, in general. As, as an institution. As an institution, yeah. I don't consider Emma a villain, and she's usually associated mm-hmm. with them, so the Hellfire comes up a little later for me. Krakoa, which is right now... Again,
0: not a villain and has uh, been for a pretty long time and was retcon to be maybe not anthropomorphic, but then retcon back to be anthropomorphic by someone who didn't like Deadly Genesis, which is definitely an understandable. Understandable. Yeah. yeah.
1: Let's do the retcon shuffle. Woo! Uh, various Shiar factions. Sublime. Sublime, sublime, fun. I enjoy sublime as a villain. So I, th- I and the Morrison run is really one of my big touchstones. Yeah. Um, the Sentinels, obviously, the
0: Sentinels and the factions within government and and groups mm-hmm. that that make them. By that, a lot of the time, governments and establishments. So Department H, the Weapon Plus program. Right. And then there are the big ones, the really big cosmic ones. Characters like Apocalypse. Apocalypse to me has always felt more like a force of nature. So I
1: don't yeah. tend to think of him when I'm making the lists. I know he's a villain. I know that he acts on a more micro than macro level most of the time, but he just doesn't register with me. Although
0: Jean Grey does. The Phoenix is yeah. frequently a villain. The Avengers. The Avengers. Um, Sinister. I, I, don't, I don't think I mentioned sinister, nope. sinister. Okay, so looking at that list and, and talking about the things we do, do and don't think of as villains, for you, where do you draw the line between an, a story-specific antagonist and a character who you'd classify as a villain? Pattern of behavior,
1: actual remorse, followed by not doing it again, the feeling that the villainy they have committed was in some way organic to their character development and not just somebody who can't get over what the X-Men looked like 20 years ago getting the opportunity to make their favorite bad guy bad again. You know, I don't think Emma is a villain because if we look at her pattern of behavior over the comics, she started off on the wrong side, but her focus has always been her students. She's always been about making sure the next generation of mutants is in a better position than the last one, whereas Xavier has never hesitated to use his powers in a very aggressively inappropriate way, even against his own students, even against people that he should have been kinder to. And because so many writers don't view that as villainy, it is consistent throughout his character. It happens again and again and again.
0: So I've got one point of argument on that, which is that he has hesitated. But honestly, I think the fact that he's hesitated and then kept returning to it is probably an even stronger underpinning to the description of him as a villain because it's textual evidence that he knows that what he's doing is ethically questionable and probably wrong. I will agree with you on that. So what about Magneto? I feel like we got to start by talking about Magneto because he's the big one. He is the X-Men's classic go-to antagonist. He's the first person who's going to jump to mind, you know. He is he is the villain you you go to if you are make, if you want to make something that just says X-Men. But he's also one of the greatest characters not just in silver fox kind of ways and he's 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 been a member of the x-men he's been consistently on the side of the angels for the last uh decades um as well as as even re- you know relatively early on in their revival he ran the xavier school for a while what makes him work and where does he stop working as a villain what A lot
1: of what makes him work, at least for me, is that Magneto is one of the few villains in the X-Men grouping that is allowed to consider himself never a villain. Uh, The only time that he has fully crossed the line into he's a villain, he can't come back was in Ultimates, where he wiped out so much of New York, but that was a different Magneto. We don't return to that Magneto because they knew they had taken him too far. Every other Magneto is still trying to secure a future for his people. So he's a bad guy. He does terrible things, but he thinks of himself as a hero all the way down. And that gives him a level of nuance and functionality that we don't frequently see when the mustaches are being twirled. He's also so very grounded in real life tragedy, um, which I think is why Magneto is sort of losing traction as the X-Men villain. Yeah. Yeah. Because as time marches on, he's not like Captain America, who went from fighting in World War II to fighting in Korea. Or Sorry, that's Iron Man. He's not one of the ones with mm-hmm. an easily slide forwardable, forwardable backstory. Yeah, Iron Man, Punisher, et cetera. Exactly. Until we hit 2018 mm-hmm. as his origin point, we don't have another concentration camp situation. Mm-hmm. We don't have that specific set of circumstances that make Magneto Magneto and make him both sympathetic and hostile at the same time.
0: Yeah, actually, we've got a reader question here that I want to talk about. I can't remember whether this is something that Miles and I have discussed on the podcast. I think we have, but not in these exact terms. Which is that that, um, Nir asks on Twitter, basically, would would like to know our thoughts and feelings about Magneto being the most well-known fictional Holocaust survivor and arguably one of the best-known fictional or non-fictional Holocaust survivors um, in the modern day, especially in light of the fact that we're coming close to a time when there are fewer and fewer fewer and fewer actual living holocaust survivors i
1: appreciate that he's so iconic marvel's never going to kill him for keeps yeah you know i think if if we were going to keep him he had to become this well-known um
0: i think there's a value in keeping the holocaust in fictional living memory even as it falls out of real life living memory
1: i agree you know, I'm from California originally. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Japanese internment camps were in California. They still taught about them when I was in school. But by the time my sisters got there six years later, it was enough past the point of the travesty that they had stopped. So my sister doesn't know what Manzanar is. Wow. And yeah, that's terrifying to me. And I think that's part of how we can be in the political place we are right now in the real world. So I think it's very important that we have this nuanced, sympathetic survivor um who's going to be kicking around forever you know thank you marketing immortality i can't really think of any other fictional survivors
0: yeah not to whom it's as fundamental in in that way yeah and
1: yeah i have oh there's the dude in the monster squad
0: yeah i have mixed feelings about a villain being the primary figure in that in I, in, I think, the ways that one tends to when the primary figure representing an often vilified minority group is a villain Agreed. the the counterpoint with Magneto is that there are there are also very, very prominent, very positively represented Jewish characters and Magneto's. Magneto's background as a survivor is, I think something that plays into his 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 philosophy and his politics but is never treated as oh he's this way just because of that
1: yes and his villainy his specific powers and choices don't actually feed into the anti-semitic stereotypes that i'm aware of which oh yeah we're, we're, we're,
0: we're all magnetic
1: that's the thing yeah which quite frankly is shocking like given when he was created even with the even with his creators mm-hmm. being decent human beings, well, and both Jewish, and both Jewish, but internalized things are a thing. You know, I'd expect him to have played into at least one point of horrible anti-Semitic caricature, and he didn't. Well,
0: Magneto wasn't textually Jewish for years. Mm-hmm. I, I he was first um, identified as a Holocaust survivor, in, I think X Men One Fifty. Okay, um, so that was that was firmly under Claremont. Thank you, Chris. And early on, he was mostly a yelling man who who really appreciated Namor's ass. Who doesn't appreciate Namor's ass? I don't know. Supervillains. No, supervillains do. Obviously, Magneto does. But that's
1: also part of why I can be okay with it. You know, if it comes in a little bit later, that doesn't mean it was always good representation. I'm not going to say go back to Magneto's first appearance and go, yes, that is a good Jewish character. Um, But it gives time for people to form their opinions of the character without that factor. Magneto didn't suddenly become a villain because they said, Oh, he's Jewish.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's, and he's complex and he's given license to complexity and in, in ways that, that I was going to say few villains are, but I, I think iconic villains often are. And in ways that, that stereotypes very rarely mm-hmm. are. Um, so yeah, I, I think I have mixed feelings about what it means that there are so few equivalently visible characters with who are who are Holocaust survivors or through whom that kind of story is, is examinable or, in general, who are survivors of genocides. Um, and I, I suspect that's something that we're going to see change significantly in the next few decades because, um, yeah... But yeah, I, I, this is this is less an answer to anything than just sort of musing about it. But I, I think I think it's important, too, that Magneto stay a World War II German-Jewish holocaust. Survive. Yeah, I don't I think... think... That's, I think that's an essential. And you know what? It's a comic book world. He can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So a, a question that we get a lot, and a question that we had a number of people write in to answer that I think Magneto kind of dovetails into well... Is has to do with, with the question of redemption and also with with the question of redemption as it specifically applies to recruiting villains or former villains to hero teams. Mm-hmm. What makes a villain redeemable? What makes a villain okay to be on the X-Men? And are there, are there any villains at whom you would draw an absolute line on that front? Because we've, we've seen, you know, going through our, our list of iconic villains, there are very few of them who haven't been on the X-Men at some point or another. What have they done? What have they tried to
1: do? When did it happen? Mm -hmm. Because I think one of the issues that we're seeing with comics today that have literally never come up before in this medium is when you write a new comic, you're suddenly contending not just with the canon that's in the living memory of your readers, you're dealing with canon that's 50 years old, Yeah. where not only the rules, but the expectations and the social standards were maybe a little bit different. So if a character shot somebody in a pre-Comics Code Authority issue, Mm -hmm. yes, they've committed murder, but I'm not necessarily going to hold that against them in the modern day the way I would if they had shot somebody in an issue that came out six months ago. So what did they do and when did they do it both matter. Um, You can still redeem them Mm -hmm. if you're willing to start excising things from canon, if you're willing to start retconning. And it also kind of depends on how much people like you or like that character. You know, I beat the Jean Grey drum a lot, but she ate a planet. She did. Well, she ate a son that just happened to have she a life She ate a son planet. that had a life-supporting yeah. planet near it. But still, she killed more people than any villain in X-Men history. And she was forgiven. Scott... Killed Xavier while containing more of the Phoenix Force than he had ever been intended to, which had been driven insane by the Avengers, who are the actual villains of that scenario. Killed Xavier, and for a long time, he was the irredeemable villain, because how dare you?
0: Yeah, that was some bullshit.
1: That was some bullshit, but so much is determined by how much everyone likes a character when they do their bad stuff. Um, you're right, I think everybody has at some point or another been an X-Man. You know, thanks to Academy X, we even had a brood be an X-Man.
0: And he was such a good one. I loved Brew. He was well, and, so and good. Brew is is generally a good guy. Brew has, has done some bloodthirsty murders, but they were specifically a result of not being himself at the time. Yes. So he is he is, I think, a character who was never a villain, but who is who has has external traits that associate him with villainy. Evan Sabinar would be a, a similar example. Yeah. I think he's a clone of apocalypse, but he didn't do the apocalypse stuff. He's he just grew up in, in fake Nebraska. I Kansas. don't
1: I don't think that you could redeem Candyman. I don't think um, you can Sugarman. Sugarman, sorry yeah agreed um I always get that confused because of the happiness patrol which was a doctor who episode that had the candy man ah. um I don't think you can redeem sugar man or dark beast I think that once you start happily committing that kind of atrocity on living test subjects who have given you no consent whatsoever you have passed a moral event horizon that I would say the murderers haven't done you know, Sabretooth has killed people, but Sabretooth has never said, I'm going to cut your twin apart one inch at a time to see what it does to you emotionally. Sabretooth
0: has definitely said the equivalent of that to people. That's actually, I was going about to bring up Sabretooth because he's living in the X-Men where we are in continuity. And for me, he does represent a kind of a hard line in mm. terms of redemption, redemption arcs, both for, in in terms of redemption arcs, at least as they go with getting to be on the X-Men. And for me, that's that's a line that relates not only to what he's done, because I think I think having Sabretooth go and be a perfectly okay person or superhero on his own, find whatever it's superhero comics, the characters are are whatever you write them to be. My issue with him being on the X-Men is that he's specifically and explicitly set out to and brutalized a large number of the X-Men in really personal and specific ways that haven't just involved being on the other side of the fight. Agreed. That I I think I think inviting him into the the mansion saying he will be here, he will be part of your lives, he will be on your teams crosses a line that nobody in a position of power equivalent to whoever's running the X-Men when that happens. In this case, Charles Xavier yeah. should ever even consider crossing. Well, don't worry,
1: Xavier's in the building, so everyone has forgotten their trauma. Well. <laughs> yeah xavier's awful um i'd put saturnine on the same list of non-redeemable Yeah, she is she is a specific kind of horrifically manipulative that i don't move past Um, satire nine or saturnine saturnine okay
0: the excalibur villain well there are two because there's 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 um omniversal majestics opal luna saturnine and then there's Satire Nine, who is one of the alternate universe hers, who is, is the dictator of a, a Nazi dungeon. Uh, Satire Nine. Who's also very you know evil, obviously. But. Yeah. Pronouncing is hard. Words yeah. are difficult to say. Well, and especially when the distinction between two characters is very clearly just supposed to be the names, the way their names are written, not pronounced, and you have to kind of make up the extra pronunciation yeah. to it, uh, I lists. mean,
1: I have yeah. an unwarranted amount of affection for Sabretooth. Because the version of him that I imprinted on is the one from Exiles, Mr. Creed. The Age th- of Apocalypse. The one. Age of Apocalypse yeah. sa- Sabretooth, who is not only a perfectly lovely guy, but he's the reason my girl Clarice made it through.
0: Yeah. Well, he's, he's in a lot of ways, he is, that Sabretooth is to his home universe as Wolverine is to the 616. In, yeah. In terms of his relative role and in terms of a lot of his personality. Yep. And that does not make the
1: 616 Sabretooth a nice guy.
0: Yeah. I think... Something else that comes up a lot in this is that a lot of former X-Men villains end up on the X-Men. Yes. I'm trying to think of whether that's a dis- it's a disproportionate number relative to other teams and superheroes. And yes. Yeah, it seems like it. Why? Why does that happen? Why do you think why do you think the X-Men specifically lend themselves to that. Well, the
1: X-Men at their best are kind of like a cross between a really good soap opera and a World Wrestling Foundation game. And World Wrestling Foundation, you have the heels and the faces, you know, people turn back and forth from the good to the evil, depending on the needs of the plot, but they are incredibly well-constructed, flashy people. And that's what we get in X-Men villains too. People want to see their favorite villains in wrestling turn face so that they can spend more time with them. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think readers are a lot more interested in seeing Magneto be a good guy for a little while than they are in seeing the Green Goblin be a good guy for a little while. Yeah. The X Men's villains are more human and their motivations are more understandable.
0: That's, yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. I think as a team, too, the X Men have the quote unquote advantage of not really needing to maintain a good reputation because they are going to be hated and feared regardless. Yep. Like, you gotta be careful with who you invite onto the Avengers, at least in theory, or at least you're gonna get press flack if you, if you you know, are Cap's kooky quartet era and, and a bunch of redeemed supervillains in Captain America. But, but with the X-Men, the majority of the people who'd be criticizing for this already think they're supervillains fundamentally because they're mutants. Yep. So there's that. Um, let's see. Specific questions. You sent in a lot, listeners. You're awesome, and I didn't go through them because today was Yom Kippur, and I was pretty much not online. But, um, there are a lot of these, and a lot of them are great. Ooh, let's see. I
1: was playing Dance Dance Revolution at an arcade in downtown Manhattan. It turns out that at that arcade, which contains the last DDR machine in the entirety of New York, a group of time travelers from 2001 still gathered daily to play professional-level expert DDR, which is terrifying when you haven't been on a machine in several years.
0: The other thing you did segues into... Um Brings me to a couple of other questions that we got because you went to see a Broadway show. I did. I went to see Little Shop of
1: Horrors with Jonathan Groff, who spits a lot when he sings. Um, my my date for the production actually leaned over and said, "I'm glad you didn't get us first or second row. We'd have been in the splash zone." Ouch! Uh, but it was magnificent. I've wanted to see Little Shop of Horrors on Broadway since I was eight years old, and it
0: did not disappoint. Wow. Yeah, I am. That is that is one I am really looking forward to to getting to. But um. In that vein, Asimov Fangirl asked on Tumblr, which X-Men villain backstory or relevant story arc would you like to see adapted into a musical? And as a secondary question, what creators, writers, musicians, composers, or if you were thinking of it in terms of a comics creative team whose work you'd like to see translated to this stage, would you like to see involved in the project?
1: So my production is called Change My Mind. And it begins as the Emma Frost Origins musical and then segues into Deadly Genesis, which is where we figure out that it's actually the story of Charles Xavier, the bad guy, because I never let anything go. Um, And for my creative team, I would actually be completely cheesy and bring in the creative team that wrote the Descendants movies for Disney uh, with Kenny Ortega as our choreographer and director. We would have a great time. It would be silly as all hell. And at the end of the production, the actress playing Emma Frost would get to shove the actor playing Charles Xavier into the orchestra pit.
0: Would there be some mechanism for safety? Or are we thinking like full turn off the dark homicides?
1: <laughs> no one died in turn off the dark. Are you sure?
0: Yes, I'm very sure. I work for the Spider-Man office. Well, that, then that are, are, are they possibly encouraging you to not let, to, to, you know, not share the large number of potential fatalities who are, who are somewhere in the backs of that theater, just wrapped in fake spider web. I think they
1: figured out that the best way to have me say something is to tell me it didn't happen. Their point. So,
0: so I've talked before about wanting there to be an executioner song musical, um, which to which I would like to write the libretto, or at, at least the lyrics. Okay. Um, but in terms of, of, of villain focus and villain arcs, I was thinking about this earlier, and while Quentin Quire is not currently a capital V villain, I think Riot at Xavier's would make a really kick-ass musical. It really
1: would. It would be so much fun also because vocal development is separate from physical development. Mm-hmm. We could cast the Stepford Cuckoos, each of them with a different range, and have a five-part chorus. That would be tremendously cool. That would be so good. Yeah. But there have been cases of identical twins who developed completely different vocal registers.
0: Oh, cool. I had no idea.
1: Yeah, soprano and alto. So we could bring in just a whole different set of options and make sure that Sophie is the high soprano Mm -hmm. and Esme is the low alto. So when they drop out, suddenly the chorus actively sounds incomplete. Ooh, I
0: like that. So in terms of other arcs, I think early X factor, you could do something cool with that because the transformation from sort of awkward corporation- you know, the ex-Terminators ruse, et cetera. The first act would be setting it up. And then the second act would involve Cameron Hodge emerging as the villain and going off the, and, and really okay. going off the deep end. And it, would, it would become this intense sort of surreal, horrifying extravaganza. It's reaching more than a little, but it's adjacent. Next wave, the musical. I mean, I, I, yeah, that's, 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 that seems like a gimme. That's, yeah. That yeah, ends, I okay. mean, it's practically a musical already. I was going to say inferno but honestly that's really I was going to say that's more like a season of a season's worth of musicals and honestly I think that's just sort of more yeah ring cycle length series yeah you do I guess you could do you could do you that's know, the problem with age of apocalypse of too
1: which would normally be one of my go-tos cuz I love the age of apocalypse but to have it make sense you have to do multiple musicals then You have to do a what is our status quo musical followed by age of apocalypse and a generation x musical so that when blink makes her appearance it makes sense it'd be full-on harry potter and the cursed child on broadway
0: oh yeah queer baiting and all oh
1: but oh gosh exiles the musical every time we break an
0: actor we just bring out somebody else in their costume oh god or we just switch in new characters when new actors have to come in mm-hmm. i love that idea um i was thinking about sinister's origin story but i, I think you could you could really I, I really only think it would it would support a one act yeah so you'd, you'd either need to pair it with something else or just just have it be a, a short one act musical all right now this is not technically about musicals but let me find a question that is ah this is this is tangentially related and that things are likely to rhyme which villains are most likely to write poetry and what form of poetry would they write and would they do it well? Uh, who does the villanelle, the haiku, limericks, sonnets, and so forth? This is from Sigrid via Tumblr. Hi, Sigrid. I should have known that'd be you. Yeah. Uh, we love you, Sigrid. We do. Uh, quick, quick plug. Uh, Sigrid... If it, in, unless there is a second Sigrid who asks a type of question that also seems very characteristic of the first Sigrid, this may be the same Sigrid who wrote the amazing essay "Kitty Queer," which you can read on our website and which I'll link to the visual companion in this in this episode or to this episode or the show notes. One of those. There will be a link. It's on our website. Sigrid is great. Yep. Emily Emma openly writes
1: sestinas. Okay. Because they are precise and difficult and when done properly look like free verse. They look effortless. But in private she writes absolutely filthy limericks which she leaves tacked up on the staff bulletin boards and no one knows who's been putting them there. Just that it's probably a telepath because she is uncomfortably accurate about the details of certain staff members' masturbation
0: habits. Toad writes villanelles or other excessively complex formal poetry and he does it remarkably well. You think of villanelle as excessively complex? Maybe not excessively. No, I'm thinking about I'm thinking of are thinking not villanelle. You are thinking of Sestinas. Seven yeah. terminal words rotating according to a set pattern. Yeah, that is what I'm thinking of. Um, I'm thinking of sestinas. But but in in any case, I I think that Toad is generally pretty conversant with with complex formal poetry and fairly good at it and fairly earnest mm-hmm. about it and probably publishes under a pseudonym. Apocalypse writes terrible
1: French rolling verse because everything comes around again, but because English is not just his second language, it's like his 983rd language. He also thinks there's nothing wrong with rhyming tragic and magic and clown and frown.
0: (laughs) But does he ever, does he ever rhyme masses with masses? Possibly. Mojo writes exclusively in commercial jingles. Yes. Unquestionably. Sebastian Shaw writes Petrarchan sonnets, and he thinks they're much more clever than they are. Charles Xavier writes Shakespearean
1: sonnets, and he thinks they're much more clever than they are. They've never exchanged them, but
0: they should. They really should. Ooh, how else have we got? Um, Sage has invented several poetic forms. Doug Ramsey has invented many poetic forms.
1: (laughs) Okay, we're moving away from villains now? We are, damn it. Warlock writes pie poems. It is a poem where the number of syllables in each line corresponds to the number of digits in pi.
0: Ah, okay. I would say that Warlock writes complex math poetry in general.
1: And it's very, very good, but no one but Doug can understand it.
0: But that's okay because Doug is also the target audience. That is correct. Back to villains. Sinister doesn't generally write poetry in the name of poetry, but a lot of his rants are probably in blank verse on purpose. That is true.
1: Sublime mm-hmm. writes blank verse using only the letters that can be harvested from your DNA. And we find out whether the poem is good or not when the tertiary mutation kicks in.
0: Ooh. How many how many words can you make out of
1: A Ts, Gs, and Cs? A surprising number, according to some professional Scrabble players I know.
0: Oh, there are professional Scrabble players? Oh yeah. Good. It's a whole thing. Yeah, you know, that, that's Threnity's origin story, or at least the origin of her name.
1: Yep. I love the word Threnody. It's a really good word. It is a really good word. I resent the fact that there's a Marvel character named Threnody because I'm writing a superhero novel with a character named Therennity. Uh, but it's okay. We're far enough away that
0: the copyright lawyers can't come for me. Good. Um, trying to think of other villains. The animator thinks that he's writing limericks, but they're not limericks. I'm not sure what they are. They're just definitely not limericks.
1: Ilyana... When she has been consumed by the fires of limbo writes very complicated russian epic verse which is beautiful and delightful and untranslatable
0: which is good because if you could read what it actually said it would set you on fire
1: (laughs) that is correct uh pixie writes church aquata which is a welsh poetic form that i should never have learned how to write
0: (laughs) it's got a good name though
1: yeah are there any vowels in it wise there are several
0: wise okay uh, I'm trying to think of who would write really charming double dactyls, or really mean double dactyls. Celine, no, she'd no. write
1: eulogies mostly, though. Yeah, she's I, I epitaphs. Feel,
0: I feel like she's not. I'm, I'm. Who's 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 the relative Oscar Wilde of X Men villains, Mister Sinister? Yeah, but, but I, I, don't I don't think that think that's he, right. I don't for think him that now. would be his form. I, I, hmm. Let's see. Oh, you know, it's going to be one of the Nasty Boys.
1: Okay. I can roll with that. Dark Reist writes incredibly pretentious free verse. We're talking like 1992 Neil Gaiman poetry level pretentious. Like the slow dripping of the rancid molasses that was your blood detracts from the taste of your spinal fluid as it rolls down my throat
0: the twist though is that he recognizes that it's pretentious ridiculous and terrible and that's the fun of
1: it and that's why he reads it out loud to people yes yes mystique wrote all of shakespeare's poems so she's
0: very good oh yes especially the sexy ones oh yeah that's why there are all the stories about shakespeare being potentially all those other different people she was just them just them as well yeah Fin Fang Foom writes the double dactyls. No, but Loki does. Has Loki ever been an X-Men villain? Yes. Okay, cool. He most definitely has. I don't remember the name of the story arc, but it was the one where they were all under a mountain and the Xavier outed Madeline's pregnancy. Okay, cool. I accept it. And Cyclops' eyes changed color twice in the same issue. Which is, is the thing I always point to when people say what Cyclops is canonical eye color? To which the answer is fuck comics. Yeah, the answer is visor. Yes, yes. <sighs> well, he didn't he didn't have his powers at the time, or he had control over his powers at the time. But Loki was the villain of that particular arc. So going back to the questions, um, House of X and Powers of X. This is from Adam Reck, who is is a fellow a fellow X Pod person on. Um, the Battle of the Atom podcast, and who also wrote and drew the uh, Bish and Jubes comics, which I believe as this episode comes out will currently be kickstarting. We'll also throw up a link to that. They are delightful. I highly recommend reading them. They are not canon, but they really should be. They are fun. They have a ton of heart. I love them a lot. Um, And and Adam also has a good question, um, which is that House of X and Powers of X set up a scenario where all mutant villains are allies, and the central villain is an ideological end a thousand years into the future. Is X-Men still X-Men without regularly occurring mutant adversaries? Yes. Yeah.
1: My favorite thing about the X-Men is that they're still X-Men when they're playing baseball in the park. Uh, And I actually, the thing I resent most about modern era comics is that we don't get to see people playing baseball in the park very often. There are always going to be things to fight. Um, You know, I work in the spider office and kind of the go-to when we need some spider some spider action and an issue is let's run. I know, I love that I work in the spider office. Yeah, that's
0: that's a really evocative phrase.
1: I got in trouble when I suggested bringing some of the tarantulas that are currently rolling all over California to the office. Apparently Aww. the spider office doesn't want me to have fun. But, but tarantulas are, I mean, I guess not all tarantulas. They're just hamsters the with extra legs. Yeah. But you know, my go-to when we need superhero action and I don't have an available supervillain is muggers. You can always punch a mugger. You can always punch a carjacker. Um, so I don't think we really need to have consistent villains. All of humanity is our villain.
0: Yeah. The X-Men, I think, often are at their best when they're fighting not against a specific villain, but against a social order or structure or an oppressive regime. Run, team with a thousand enemies, for if they catch you, they will kill you. Ooh. But first, they must catch you. All right, um... P Kingdom H which possibly is supposed to be pronounced as one word but I'm not even going to try um, asks us on Tumblr for our thoughts on Daken Wolverine's son um and mentions that that he he would like to see him the character written more consistently cuz sometimes he's great and sometimes he's awful and that's basically Comics. my feeling about him as well um I think that when Daken is written as an interesting and morally complex character that's often done well and when he's a villain it's often kind of cringy. I think that Dawkins has the same
1: problem for me that X-23 and probably eventually Scout is going to have where they're great characters kicking around in their own books Mm -hmm. when they're being written by someone who genuinely cares about that character and the challenges are being set up for somebody who is functionally unkillable and can slice through concrete. But once you add them to a team book, they don't want to be there. They don't like being there. They are completely disinterested. What is the character's motivation for actually participating in this plot? Well, the motivation turns into snappy one-liner, snappy one-liner, gonna wander away now.
0: Yeah. I think Daken works best in a lot of ways as a mystique-flavor character, someone who occasionally teams up with heroes or villains, but is largely doing their own thing with their own agenda. Yes. So as, as relatively unaffiliated. I would also like to see writers not do a thing that has been done a lot with him, which is to lean into every bad stereotype about bisexual men. Yep. So, do that better. Uh, Queer Buzzkill asks, How do you feel about the frequency with which the Avengers are used as antagonists, if not villains, within the X-Books, but remain heroes within their own respective books? And eh. That yeah. is the whole yeah. of my answer. Um, and, and they go on to ask, what, what is the politics surrounding X-Men who take spots on Avengers teams during those stories? I think usually they're wrong and they're allied with the wrong side. The problem with a lot of the, the let's, let's you and him fight superhero battles is that it's got to be contrived, it, it is this, that the reasoning for it is pretty contrived, but it's set up as, as a, a, an equi- a false equivalency. So Avengers versus X-Men, for instance, the Avengers are just wrong. Like everything that goes wrong in that series is the Avengers fault. Yep. And they do the wrong things and they approach things extremely unethically. And if they had just left well enough, the hell alone, it would have been okay. But they didn't. And yet it's treated as well. It's this serious thing that the, you know, both sides have good points and no, they didn't. They didn't. And, and it's, 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 it's not, I, I'm trying not to draw the parallel to sort of both sides in things like evolution or, you know, queer people should get to live and work like anyone else. But it kind of feels like that in that one of these stances is just very clearly wrong. And it's just a narrative construction that's setting setting it up as, as you know, just a difference in perspective.
1: And anytime you use the X-Men as the bad guys, when it's not, why are you harboring Sabretooth in your living room? He just killed 80 orphans. You are kind of setting up people who get to have superpowers and not be default supervillains against people who have been used as a metaphor for oppressed groups because they are mutants they are hated they are feared all of that shit uh all of that stuff sorry about that um, I, no this is this is an M-rated podcast we, we, we i know we swear with fucking impunity you know how filthy mouthed i get so i try not to when i'm in a guest in your virtual space you know so it's basically the equivalent of somebody coming into a group of people that they do not belong to and knocking over all of their chairs and water glasses. So Mm -hmm. a cat. If your cat can knock over chairs, I don't want to meet it.
0: Well, it depends on the chairs.
1: That's fair. My mother does not speak X-Men at all. She knows who Emma Frost is because there's Emma Frost art all over our house. She knows who Nightcrawler is because I told her she wasn't allowed to read the comics I wrote. And she knows who Mystique is now because Mystique was not a comic I wrote. She's got a very limited X education. But she can and will, when I get angry about something she thinks is silly, just stand there and go, where were you when our babies were burning? Because the Avengers are so wrong about everything and i shout that line every time i lose my damn temper god it's such a good
0: line too. it really is yeah so so the avengers are generally wrong about this i will say my my exception to to let's these superheroes fight tends to be this is all a terrible misunderstanding someone was manipulated and we all apologize afterwards stories the x-men's um first fight with the fantastic four in which Professor Xavier is, is mind-controlled by the Mad Thinker and, and the Puppet Master, um, who is Alicia Master's father, because that's their actual last name. His first name isn't Puppet. Um, it should be. It really should. And actually, that segues into another question, too, but I'm going to keep talking about this for a sec. Um, Yeah, so Xavier tells the X-Men, you have to go kill the Fantastic Four, and the X-Men are like, are you sure? And he's like, yes, yes, absolutely, don't argue with me. And they're like... Okay, uh, we're a bunch of teenagers, and you have you have convinced us that you're morally infallible, so I guess we have to do this. And um, that all works out well in the end. And the Fantastic Four is is very concerned and very apologetic, and no one gets no one actually gets killed or seriously hurt. So And if that happened today, Sue and Reed would take the X-Men away
1: from Xavier so quickly, yeah. heads would spin.
0: Unquestionably. Yep. Although although i would i Reed as another one of those those characters who is who exists on the perpetual edge of supervillainy oh he does the yeah. maker is a thing yeah well the maker is a thing and in general reed richards in 616 is often a thing yep so let me find this question cuz it was great um which is oh yes uh did the porters know that their son what their son's powers were going to be when they named him teleford this is The Vanisher, whose name is Teleford Porter.
1: I am staring at you in abject horror. Yeah. Do we know anything about his parents? We do not. Then I'm going to say that that name is so freaking uncommon that one of them, probably the mother, because of the way that baby naming tends to work in this country, was a mild precog.
0: Okay. Okay. There were a lot of mild precogs based on the number of of characters who had had names that went with. The weird thing is when the last names make sense, like that one or like with Richter.
1: Right. But if it's first names, if it's something that got to be chosen, we see enough psychics kicking around that I would not be surprised if in 616, there is a huge, huge number of very low grade telepaths, telekinetics and and, and, uh, precogs.
0: Just, that makes sense. I would assume that there are generally much, much lower levels of most powers. That you know, for every Iceman, there's someone whose drink is always cold. Yeah, or who's, who's who's base body temperature is just a few degrees. You know, hits home, homeostasis a little bit below normal. And for every, I don't know, for every havoc, there's someone who just sort of mildly explodes now and then. But it's not a big deal. <laughs> I'm not, for every chamber, really there's someone who's missing a
1: quarter-sized chunk of their sternum. Well,
0: or for for every for every boom boom there's someone who just get who just gets static electricity shocks yep. way too frequently and can shock almost anything by touching it. Yep. And just thinks that electronics hate them.
1: So I'm going to say mild precogs are probably super pants common.
0: Okay. Um there is there is an actual continuity question here and it's one I can a- I think we can both answer off the top of our heads. And there were a couple of these, two different people asked this, which is kind of wild because I think of this as, as something we've talked about a lot, but I think we, we don't actually talk that much about Sinister's actual goals. We mostly talk about how dramatic he is. So a couple different people want to know what Sinister's endgame is. One person in particular asks, is it ever explained why he's so interested in his Scott slash Jean baby? Also, why Scott, given, given that of of between him and his brothers, he's arguably the least powerful. So the answer to this is that Sinister's entire thing his his entire endgame is to engineer a kid who can stop or take down apocalypse, and the reason the reason that it has to be Scotts and Jeans, and the reason he fixates on them is actually a time loop that involves them going back into the Victorian era to stop him from doing some stuff, and him finding out their names and fixating on them. And one of the people who he's kidnapped, choosing the last name Summers when he emigrates to the United States, then being becoming you know, Scotts several greats grandfather um in 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 honor of this this couple who saved them in the wildly anachronistic for their adventures of cyclops and phoenix but what he's trying to do and what he what he specifically wants the means to do is engineer this very specific baby who is somehow powerful enough to take down apocalypse because sinister is is the ultimate um treacherous vizier Mm -hmm. that's that's what he's after how much what he does makes sense relative to that and how it ties into wanting to make everyone into clones of him is questionable because Sinister's other goal is to just make things as glam as possible. But yeah, he's, he's trying to take down the apocalypse and to engineer the kid who can grow up and do that. Yep. And I'd say Scott is not as bad a choice as you might think. You know, his powers
1: give him access to a pure dimension of concussive Ruby energy. So just make a kid with bigger eyes. Make a kid whose head just opens
0: up like a box. Make a kid who's actually a sidewalk. It's another question about another one of my favorite ex villains, uh, and and this is this, this 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 apparently um one of one of Mighty Evil Doom's on on, on Twitter's favorite ex villains as well. They ask Cameron Hodge has always been my favorite ex villain. Why don't we see him used more? And what would you do with him if you were writing the X if you were writing the X Men today and presumably had him in and on your team.
1: Cameron Hodge, I, I apologize if you're listening and this sounds like I'm dismissing your favorite because I'm not, but Cameron Hodge has never really appealed to me super much. So I haven't put any thought into it. I'm sorry.
0: In a lot of ways, I think Cameron Hodge works best as a long game villain. He's someone who, when he first emerged as a villain, did it after years of groundwork. Mm-hmm. Um, he, while his, his later forms are more and more cinematic And while he's popped up you know as as parts of of various phalanx adjacent hive minds in at least the last couple decades i feel like he kind of peaked in genosha and he had his big arc and he had his big yeah he had his big villain song repeatedly and I, I think, first of all, that, that bringing him back before around now would have been a mistake just because he was pretty saturated for a while. And I think if you were to bring him back now you would and do it effectively, you would need to have it be a slow infiltration, a slow rise to really work. So part of why he's not around very much is that very few writers get that much time on an X book. Yeah. You don't get to lay years of groundwork. You get five-issue arcs. I
1: think it would have to be Hickman or somebody on that scale to do him effectively because the rest of us really can't. That's not how comics work anymore.
0: Yeah. So it would, he would have to be the center of, of a big world shifting event or era. Yeah. But yeah, I, I I love Cameron Hodge too. He's just, he's so he's, it's not that he's the most powerful. It's not that he's the most villainous, but he's definitely one of the most just profoundly unsettling of the, of the villains. So I'm going to say we're, we're about out of time. I've got one more question for you because this is something that I like to think about. We get a lot of questions about, you know, if you could redeem one villain, which would you? But I kind of want to look in the other direction. If you could have one currently heroic X-Men character or one character who's hist- historically been a hero, just do a full heel turn, become, become a villain, become at least an, an ongoing act- antagonist to the X-Men. Who and why? Do I need to have them redeemable at the end? No.
1: Hope. Yeah. Okay. I think if we take out Hope, even when Cable is dead, and Cable being dead is part of how you could take out Hope, mm-hmm. but I think if we take out Hope, we hurt the Summers, all of them, very, very badly, because she is an honorary Summers. She was raised by Cable. You, know, it's her last name and all, mm-hmm. and her power set lends itself so well to villainy. Yeah. Also, uh, if you're caught up on Hox Pox, Take out hope,
0: we've lost the entire resurrection circuit. Right. So suddenly death counts again. And she went, she went if not villain, hardcore antagonist for a while, she did definitely shoot Cyclops in the face. She did. With with an actual gun. That, that happened. She did. But I think
1: that hope has been through so much more emotional trauma than anyone wants to actually credit her with having been through the number of worlds she saw die in her childhood. Then she lost her father. She winds up in the ultimate. I am a protagonist in a YA novel scenario where you have to save the mutant race. You, 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 it's just going to be you hope. If it's not you, then who? to get the lights on and then she's not the one that saves the mutant race she has lost literally everything including the chosen one status that she never asked for so hope snapping and just starting to mow down x-men like wheat would be beautiful okay yeah
0: i'm trying to think through i've talked a lot about about beast as a is a borderline villain but i think i think part of what makes beast dangerous in that context is his absolute conviction of his moral rectitude and to the extent to which the x-men have his back as he does this stuff Mm -hmm. so he's he's not a clear choice for that Mm -hmm. gosh thinking through different eras um and characters and people you know i don't see it happening in 616 but if we're thought-experimenting it, I think Megan would be a fantastic supervillain. Megan or Gloriana? Ooh, good question. Because I,
1: I could take Gloriana yeah. supervillain in 616.
0: Brexit will break her. Yeah. Brexit will break her, but also just the response to eco-activism.
1: Yeah, I mean, between global climate change and Brexit, given that she is literally the living embodiment of the myth of England at this point, like, she is more England than Captain Britain is. Yeah, Captain Britain is the champion
0: of the thing. She is the thing. She
1: is the thing. The fact that her people are destroying themselves in this way and they refuse to see sense. We've got the rise of anti-Semitism and the rise of anti-Roma racism happening in Europe again and concentrated in England. We could take 616, Megan, all the way bad
0: really easy. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think she'd emerge from that. She'd end up as a much more powerful, but a villain in the rough mold of Poison Ivy where you have someone who is an idealist and who has fundamentally really noble goals and has just given up on trying to work with humanity and achieving them. Mm -hmm. So she would be interesting there. Um, I think Rachel Summers would be a really fascinating villain. I think she would be more in in the epic antagonist model, but I think you could go some very interesting places with that. Although right now, what I mainly just want is her to be written consistently and well and interesting. And
1: see, I wouldn't want Rachel to go villain because if Rachel went villain, her story would be entirely about Jean.
0: I don't think, I think if it was done well, it wouldn't need
1: to be. If Jean is alive, almost any writer working today is not going to be able to resist centering Jean's pain, how much it hurts Jean that her daughter is doing these things. We've seen that again and again when Rachel is placed in danger, when there's any kind of challenge to Rachel that Jean has time to react to. And that is just not a story I want to see
0: again. Well I feel like for for me any of these which of these stories would you like to see told are contingent on it having a creative team who can do it well and write. That's fair. That's I mean what you were talking about with Megan like there are honestly I feel like that that's a story I would I would side eye the hell out of if you weren't the re- one writing it but but like a very small group of people who I'd, I'd feel comfortable see handling something like that. And especially especially with characters who are part of what's often represented as a heavily allegorical minority group going villain it's really delicate territory to walk so, it is so taking taking it as read that someone could do this right is always always sort of a hard qualifier i'd like to see xavier doing that and acknowledged as such yes without it being the excuse of a psychic projection actually not xavier turning i would like to see the marvel universe start treating xavier as a villain yes that would be very nice I that would make me happy that. that would be that would be fun so if someone
1: assigned you a character make villainous, can you make who is there anyone you don't think you can take all the way villain?
0: I mean there are characters who I think it would be very hard to take all the way villain while writing them consistently with the ways they've been written thus far. Mm-hmm. Nightcrawler at least 616 Nightcrawler is an obvious choice there. He's too compa- he is he is like compassion is so fundamental to his characterization. That I, I think it would be it would be an extremely hard stretch. I'm not saying it's not doable. I feel. But like- I don't think he'd be. I, I think he's he's an obvious choice for a character who you'd have to do a lot of gymnastics to to get into that position.
1: I think we just skipped over our best opportunity to make Nightcrawler a villain. Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't know if this has been acknowledged at all, but at least according to editorial, everyone who went into Age of X-Men was going to come back to 616 with their memories intact. But they came out of Age of X-Men, and we went straight into the Hawks Pox era, so none of that actually wound up mattering. But Age of X-Men Nightcrawler got everything he ever wanted, and he got a child who he fully acknowledged as his own, and then had it all taken away and wiped out, and he wasn't one of the ones that chose that. Yeah. So I think we could have taken that Nightcrawler villainous in a very how how fucking dare you
0: that sort of true. way. Although again, I don't see him responding to like his how fucking dare you move tends to be hermitage and strongly worded yes. letters. He
1: is still Mystique's son, though
0: he is, and you see, you see, you see it's in Age of it. Apocalypse, for example a Nightcrawler who could absolutely go super villainous and who, whom we've seen as at least a minor antagonist, although the Age of Apocalypse apocalypse X-Men refugee who went full villain in 616 was Iceman. Right. No, I think that a lot of these
1: characters that we're proposing as villains, like you could take them all the way to I'm going to kill everybody. Yeah. Nightcrawler would be much more targeted vengeance. I'm going into Batman territory here. I am the knight
0: and I have a knife. <laughs> I am denied and also can hide in it. Would the leprechauns team up with him? Yes. Good, good. Thinking of other really unlikely villains. I mean, actually, so Brew, personality intact, would make a really interesting villain. I could see him, I could absolutely see him going the logical supervillain. Oh, yeah. Like, damp, like, route where... He genuinely feels that this is the only route that makes sense. And he's ultimately doing a good thing.
1: So we, I know that Brew's gender identity is male, but is yes. Brew a queen?
0: Does, I don't know.
1: Okay. So if Brew is a brewed queen, mm-hmm. then we could have a full-on outbreak while nobody's looking for it. Interesting. And that would be a party that would, would be, be a, a party, party and a half it would be a great party i don't want an invitation
0: yeah
1: um transonic almost went villain a couple times while she was still with the lights so yeah, she did that's not hard uh character i don't know how e- how easily it would be to take them villain i boy yeah i mean it would be easy to take him creepy it would it would be much harder to take him villain cuz what can he do all i need is a mister full of lemon juice and he is out of commission
0: ooh <laughs> Eventually, I, I assume eventually he'll have a suit that's basically goggles, just, not, <laughs> just nothing go- but goggles. Nothing but goggles. All of his <laughs> eye right. boy bits
1: flapping in the wind because he can't put,
0: you know, in oh, goggles. Does he have? Does he have eyes on his scrotum? I don't know. I don't think that's ever been explored in canon. Marvel, call us. <laughs> Come on. <sighs> Who else would be fun as a villain? I mean, Polaris is always fun as a supervillain. Yes, but. I think, and I think, again, with Polaris, my general feelings are that she is more interesting in, in gray spaces where she is working for the government or where she is on her own doing something or where she is just done with your shit and wants a cape.
1: I would like to see Pixie go full villain. Yeah. We saw her trend dark a couple times, and then we saw that flash future when everyone was trapped in Legion's mind where she went full on bat-winged. But a fully corrupt Pixie who has lost all connection to wanting to be anything other
0: than high queen of hell would mm. be so much fun. You know, that takes me to the cross time caper issue where Kitty, Ilyana, and Doug are a crime Lord triumvirate. Yes. And we've seen supervillain Doug. We saw the true friend universe, mm-hmm. but having, having the three of them be like, we're going to try to do this. We're going to rebuild this. We're going to do it right everyone else is fucking it up we've got to do it. we've got to do this thing on our own terms and basically basically the 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 chicken wings episode of community but with the three of them in super villainy where they just accidentally become a crime family Yep. and they keep going and it goes too far i think if kitty ever went villain we'd lose
1: 616
0: yeah she's 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 very good at what she does
1: she is and what she does is destroying your computer backups you know, there is no possible way they could have predicted when they gave her that power, how powerful it would make her in the modern day. Yeah. There are times where I just want to be like, come on, Kitty, go take a walk through Facebook headquarters.
0: The dream. The dream. <sighs> Kitty is powerful. Doug is... Also terrifying. Doug is also... Tra- yeah, Doug has Doug has the means to... B- Basically, Doug is the ultimate consigliere. Well, Doug is Sophie Devereaux. Like Doug can
1: read and decode your exact personal language in seconds. Mm, He can't perform, he can't can't do the performative aspect. He can't do the performative aspect, but if we hook Doug up with the Stepford Cuckoos,
0: collectively, they are the best grifter the world has ever known. Ooh, so I have a challenge for you, actually. This is a question we got once and I worked hard on it and I put it together and I liked my answer and I think it worked pretty well, but you are the other person I know who knows X-Men and Leverage as well as I do and Leverage probably better and loves both so dearly. If you were putting together it, a leverage team out of X-Men characters with the same set of roles, who's what? Kitty Pride would be
1: our initial mastermind mm-hmm. because Kitty is primed for the job, but not a telepath. And I think it's important that your mastermind not be able to read everyone. Okay. Um, Sophie would, as stated, be a collective of Doug and the Cuckoos. All right. um, everybody else on the team thinks there is one blonde chick that follows their grifter around because the Cuckoos are being dicks all the time that being the cuckoo's primary mechanism, um, your thief and future mastermind would be Mercury. Okay. Interesting. Because part of Parker's shtick is she's the best in the world. She can get into and out of anything without tripping the alarms or getting caught. All right. Nightcrawler, for all that he is very good at what he does, doesn't have that kind of focused movement.
0: No, well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't cast him as as the thief in that lineup
1: anyway. No. Mercury, though, would be very, very good at it, and using a teleporter is kind of cheating. Right. Um, Your hitter, you need that very specific mixture of incredibly good guy and punches incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. So, loath as I am, I would go with Wolverine. Okay. Because we know that he is an incredibly good guy, let's sneak up on the deer just to touch it, blah-de-blah.
0: Another character who I, whom I didn't think of because I, I stuck Wolverine in that role as well, um, the, but who I think could step into that role well and would also be that yeah, it's a very distinctive walk is Bishop. Yeah. Bishop would do really well in that position. Yeah.
1: Um, and the trouble is that I've already used two of our available computer savvy people because I've mm. got Kitty and, uh, and Doug occupied. Right. And that pretty much leaves us with Sage, who is the worst Hardison ever. so like she can do the computer stuff but her people skills so sage also has an inexplicable blonde chick that follows her around all the time um the third cuckoo just hangs out in a closet hitting her head rhythmically against the wall going why are we doing this why are we doing this why are we doing this?" so
0: what i'm getting is that the cuckoos aren't so much a specific role as the general organization yes they they are they are the glue the cuckoos are leverage incorporated okay i was was gonna say their. what's the name of their fictional founder with the portrait with the money behind it? Um he's old Nate. The 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 first Nathaniel Leverage. Oh, Nathaniel first, Leverage. Nathaniel the leverage the first. Yeah, Nathaniel That leverage or their leverage Lucille. Aw. No, Lucille's a teleporter. That's true. Lucille's gotta be a teleporter. Uh Lucille is is the is is the is hacker's man. Yeah. For for those of you tragically unfamiliar with Leverage, watch Leverage. It's great. It really is. Yeah. All right, and I think that is about that for us. Thank you so much for listening. Shannon. thank you so much for filling in. Thank you for having me. Where can the folks who think that you're rad and want to read more of your work or listen to you talking about X-Men more or read you talking about X-Men more find you online and so, elsewhere my
1: name is Shannon, which is spelled s as in sam e as in emma a as an angel n as in nancy a as an apple n as in naughty if you can spell that you can find me because pretty much all the other Shannons on the internet are irish football players and they're all big hulking dudes whereas i am a relatively short blonde chick um and that helps a lot with making the distinction. You can find me at SeananMcguire.com or I hang out on Twitter as at SeananMcguire. I'm also on Tumblr as SeananMcguire. Yes, that is actually me. Please stop sending asks to go, Oh my God, is that actually you? I'm really tired of answering them. I currently write Ghost Spider for uh, Marvel Comics, which I'm very excited about, even after a year of doing it, because Gwen Stacy is my girl forever. I'm not doing anything X-related at the moment, but you can pick up the collection The Amazing Nightcrawler, which has my entire Age of x man Nightcrawler run. And if our trade paperback sp- sales spike high enough, they might give me my team back, which I would really appreciate, because uh, I miss them. Mostly I write novels, and again, if you can spell my name, you can find them. They are available from a bookstore near you. And I'm going to stop talking now before Jay kicks me.
0: All right, this episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. This week, Sean and Jay Explain the X-Men. so recorded in Forest Hills, New York. It is produced, as always, by the inestimably patient and lovely Matt Hunter. We love you! Um, if if you want, you can click through and find um, more stuff at explainthexmen.com, including visual companions and links that go with every episode. Usually we have shorter visual companions with ones like this, but we'll definitely have links, including to where you can find Sean and stuff online, and also buy her books, because she didn't mention that she is a marvelous and award-winning novelist. And they're all good. They're all really good. My favorite are The Wayward Children books, but um, there are a lot of them. I write so many books. So many. It's ridiculous. Like, it's, it's getting into Stephen King book-a-week territory here. That is my goal. I
1: actually want to die having written more books than Stephen King. And he's probably going to die before me because he's like a billion
0: years old. So I'm I'm in good shape. Yeah, you've, you've got a good jump on that. Um, Miles... And I will not be back next week. Miles will be back next week, but I will be going on vacation. So he is going to be talking to the person who I think comes closest to being the origin story for this podcast, or at least the origin of Miles's interest, and by extension mine, in X Men: the inimitable Steve Stokes.
1: Woo! <laughs>